for our afternoon session. It's their life after backwardation. It's a very good subject. And the speaker is going to be Peter von Copanola. And uh, the floor is yours, Peter. Thank you. Today's or this afternoon's subject, life after backwardation, wasn't easy. I thought so at the beginning when I had to think about it. And going into it, I reluctantly had to do it because I engaged myself. Because as I went into it, I realized that this is bad news. Bad news. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, like anybody else. But looking into the future is like looking into a crystal ball. Only the gypsies can do that. I can't. Any gypsies in the room? I don't think so. So looking into the future is risky. That's why I will expand a little bit on history, on a few key definitions that we need to understand, and I'm not going to be very technical. Sorry. <laughs> Being a mathematician, I am not, because I am a tax counsel. And forgive me if I talk about tax issues and precious metals, that will be a small interjection. If you are like me, and you started reading Professor Fichetti some time ago, I'll tell you what it was like. I read the professor's work sometime six, seven years ago. Hmm, nice. But I don't understand this man. <laughs> Let's read it again. So, again, again, hmm, nice. Let me look it up, because I still don't get it. Paul Samuelson, standard work in the United States and possibly the United Kingdom, I'm not sure. Well, what's he talking about? There's nothing in Paul Samuelson. What is this? Let me take another work. Going through my university years of the 80s, um, and in the 80s there was still monetary economics as a subject. I found my book, and there was nothing in there. And I thought, well, this must be my first year course, and this professor is on an advanced level. So I wrote that off. But I was intrigued. I was intrigued with the professor's work and I kept on reading and it made sense to me unlike my university course and in 1986 thereabouts I was also naive I admit that and um, I thought I could handle it and you know last time I was here which was in July last year I admitted to a full group that I was, used to be, a day trader at some stage. Given up on that. I've had my belly full. But in the meantime, I picked up a lot of material there to know what I was doing. 
to day one. I'm a tax counsel. I know about trading a little bit. I'm intrigued by the professor's work. And I'm going to talk about backwardation as a person opinion, at least life about backwardation. It, this is my personal view, because there could be many more. First off, the good news, I suppose, there is good news and there is bad news. The good news is, yes, there is life after backwardation, I think. The good news is, for everyone the same. The bad news is that we haven't hit the wall yet. Or let's say, let's rephrase it, we haven't hit bottom yet. The question is, should we ever let it go this far? I think that's what the professor intends to prevent, that it hits the bottom. Hitting bottom means we're really running at 100 kilometers an hour into a brick wall. That is part of what I'm going to show running into a brick wall. To understand the professor properly, and I've read every work that he's written, or every pamphlet, as you may call it, um, I've, I've read it many times over, and you know, just to get a clear picture in my mind. And you are here because you are intrigued by the professor, otherwise you wouldn't be here. It is necessary to go through a few definitions. Popular we know inflation as the going up of price levels. Your, middle, your, your bottle of milk will cost you X cents and a year on onwards it might cost you more. This is what is co popularly called inflation. The professor, however, has another definition. If you see in his work the word inflation, he means something different. And in the same, at the same time, he means by deflation also something different. I want to make that very sure that everybody in this room understands it, otherwise it will, it will pass by you. Inflation, according to the professor, in, in just a few words, is the flow of funds into commodities, which are then hoarded for profit, for sale later on. In other words, there's low demand for money. Try to understand. Okay, this wasn't go away. I'll do this manually. I don't know. Should test this program first. We see this inflation, and I'm not that old, and most people in this room are not that much older. Inflation <coughs> happened in the 70s. It's, it's basically shown on this map, which I've taken from the long wave analysts. It's 
I give full and proper credit yeah, off camera. We see basically a representation of the Kondratyev um, wave. And this is, please understand, this is stylized. It is not exactly as it is shown there, but it is stylized. In the 70s, we had inflation, which is shown here. Now, inflation, as the professor defines it, it is basically money into commodities and the low demand for money. Nobody is hoarding money, in other, in, in, in other words. But they are hoarding goods. Any best, best example that was uh, used by the professor was this um, super tanker. Oil was hoarded all up to the 70s. And that's when it stopped. We'll talk about why it stops there, and we talk about why it should stop in the bottom. Because that was a session that was given last time in July, the marginal productivity of um, at, at the session of marginal, marginal productivity of capital. Deflation, on the other hand, that is the dishoarding of commodities, which rolls over at this stage. It rolls over and it goes into a high demand for money. And I'm saying money, not credit. Could say credit, I suppose, but let's, let's define it as a high demand for money. And people dishold all their goodies, all their oil and all the. You can see that, you can. As I go on, I will um, expand on that. But this is the definition of inflation. Inflationary period, a rollover, and at the bottom, I suppose, there's also a rollover and a deflation. That's how it is defined by the professor. Don't get tricked by, by um, economists' talk who say inflation is the, the price level going up and deflation is the other way around. Because deflation right now is being masked by, not this man, but by the debasement. And not only during a period of inflation or deflation, it is always masking all your transactions. A debasement, or another word for debasement, is um, seigneurage. Uh, do I pronounce this correctly, seigneurage? Yeah. Yes? Seigneurage. Yeah. That's the English word, right. Or debasement, or the deliberate theft of buying power. It also, in the period of inflation, people were printing money, and even before then, the kings and the royalties were doing just the same by, let's say, thinning out the amount of gold in their coins. Obviously, their fraud was exposed very fast. Uh, however, in paper money, the fraud is there. It's also detectable, but it is so confused with inflation and deflation. Please don't get tricked by that. Debasement is constant. In an inflationary period, it has an accelerating effect, if you like, and in a deflationary phase, it may be slowed down a bit. Your TV that you could have bought uh, 10 years ago at $200 is still for sale at $200. 
deflated dollars, if you like. Very important to understand is this. In fact, it's key. This is the inverted pyramid of John Exter. Now, Mr. John Exter was, as a little background, he was apparently um, the first governor of the Bank of Ceylon, which became the Bank of Sri Lanka. And later on, Mr. John Exter became a governor of the Federal Reserve Bank, I believe. I wasn't there. That's what I could find out in my research. So this pyramid was made, constructed by, not an idiot, it was made by uh, one of them. One of them, I mean, people who work for the central banks. He was a very unique one of them. John yes. Esther called the US dollar, I owe you nothing money. Oh, well, he was the one who coined the phrase. Yes. Excellent. He was an extraordinary central bank. If they were like him, I would have no problem with the central bank. <laughs> Excellent. I didn't know that. Thank you. Um, you, know, you always learn him. Coming back to this pyramid, you will not find this in a Paul Samuelson or in any other book. Yet it is essential. It's made by a central bank. Now, what does it say? It says devolution of money, and a devolution by that he means basically there is a bid ask spread. Now, there's always been a bid ask spread for anything bid ask spread for commodities, small business, real estate. Can it be read on, at the back there? Huh? Uh, diamonds and gemstones, stocks, commodities, blah, 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 treasury bills, gold in the bottom. Now these bid-ask spreads are essential in understanding this also. Because this devolution of money always takes place in inflationary periods and in deflationary periods. We will see that we are in a deflationary period and there is a massive disconnect. In a deflationary period, there is a devolution, a run. People will leave the small businesses because they're on offer for a high price, but nobody's bidding. Same with real estate. They're on offer, if you like, for 900 million or 900,000, but nobody's buying. Now, I know some property will be, I mean, is for sale in Detroit for one dollar, which is different circumstances, but that's also deflation. Anyway, there's a run-up, or a run-down, let's say. There's a vertical devolution. People want to get out of these commodities and into money, which is deflation. And inflation, as de defined by the profession, is a run out of money, low demand for money, and a high demand for commodities. And you have this vertical reverse devolution. This is key to understanding the concept of inflation and deflation. And don't forget the basement, which is constant, just to complicate things. Another definition that should be pertinent to 
understanding if there is life after backwardation. That is, and this is now my personal input, obviously, because I'm from the legal profession. <clears throat> it's called legal positivism versus natural law. Now, when the professor speaks about natural law, he sometimes refers to defying God or you know, against nature, he sometimes says. Now this is, this is exactly that. Natural law is the natural state of things. In comes a certain Mr. Thomas Hobbes in the 16th century. And Mr. Thomas Hobbes made his grand work called Leviathan. Is that pronounced correctly? Leviathan? Yeah. Obviously, you know this, this work, Sandeep. Uh, is everybody. Uh, uh, just two words. Mr. Thomas Hobbes was a philosopher, 16th century, and he basically said there is such a thing called the state. We do away with all these little kingdoms and people's little wills. You know, we'll have this fiction, which is a state, and it has its own personality and its it can run things for us. That's his work called Leviathan. If you don't know that, it's, it's a good work to read. And there was a follow-up work by Mr. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher. He put the locus of the state with the people. Now, this is expanding a little bit, but uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau preceded the French Revolution, and the French, French Revolution drew a few of its uh, inspiration, or drew its inspiration partially from uh, Rousseau's work uh, all a long time ago, but it is important to know that legal positivism comes or is based on, on those philosophers' work. Legal positivism On the other hand, as opposed to natural law, that is basically saying, well, the law is not what you say it is, the law is what the law says it is. And the law, that's us, we make the law here, this is parliament, and that is, you know, representation, and we're a democracy, and that's, you know, that's what we do, that we make the law. So that's it. Never mind natural law. Natural law says you can't kill. Now we say also we, you can't kill. And we say also uh, one dollar is one dollar. Therefore it is one dollar. That is legal positivism. But natural law says is one dollar indeed a dollar? Natural law says uh, gold is money. This is what I want to contrast. It goes back to this inverted pyramid. Remember the inverted pyramid? Gold is in the bottom, pretty scarce, that's natural law. People say for 5,000 years gold is money. In comes legal positivism as a, as a philosophy and they say, well, right, we call this technical nominalism, just giving the child a name, of course. And it was a certain Mr. Knopf, 
a German, I believe, could be an Austrian. Is everybody Austrian in here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so. <laughs> we know And <laughs> Mr. Knapp in 1919, well, at the turn of the century, he, um, he wrote a book, and it was in the German language, anyway, the uh, Staatliche Theorie des Geldes. And I'll sum it up in one word. Um, he says, the law says what money is. Big applause from governments. The law says what money is. Wow. We've spoken about natural law. Obviously, uh, people have said this. Well, I'm saying 5,000 years. I could be wrong. Uh, could be slightly less. Could be slightly more. But it is important to understand that natural law is being taken out by positive We have heard Rudy speak about definition of backwardation. Also Sandy spoke about it. We have had those definitions. Basically, in the word, it means peace, gold now, not later. I've made my little definition. I cannot otherwise compress a whole session or two into uh, one sentence, except for this one. We also should have a look at negative interest rates. Negative interest rates are something that people don't really understand that easily. But negative interest rates did happen here, in the 30s. And Interest rates went negatively routinely there, eh? only to go up later on in the inflation years. <coughs> but negative interest rates have peculiarity because they command a premium on treasuries. And they happen here in the bottoms, or in at least severe depressions. Negative interest rates are dangerous for different reasons. The professor has written a work which is titled The Black Hole of Negative Interest Rate. Was it that title, Professor? The Black Hole of... Um, the Black Hole of, of Negative Interest. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying that they're, they're dangerous because um, for technical reasons and, well, very practical reasons also, it's a black hole. You, you can't get out. Sorry, just short of that, Switzerland's been in negative interest rate environments a number of times, and they're there now as well. There's basically up to a year you get negative interest rates on Swiss pressures. So I didn't know that. No, well, I mean, they've been there before. But they did not get dragged into the black hole. A black, how do you define a black hole then? No, you, you said you said a negative interest rate is a black hole. Yes, it is a black hole because it is it is very threatening to, to capital. So no, I was just wondering basically if you don't know that Swiss situation. The Swiss have traditionally been um, very capitalized. 
And I'm just wondering, um, I haven't looked at Switzerland at all for a long time. I used to work for a Swiss company, um, making a, a, a swatch group, I believe, but that was in a previous lifetime, like 1990, I believe. But um, for the rest, I have no connection with Switzerland. But I believe the negative uh, interest rates are a black hole simply because it, it chases away capital. I will come back to that later on. Uh, there's many ways of destroying capital, but I believe that the black hole of negative interest rates um, is so destructive. One should be very careful about negative interest rates. Maybe it's occurring in Switzerland. Obviously, they have a lot of capital accumulated, and before they're bankrupt, it will be a while. Negative interest rates on uh, Zimbabwe treasuries are a different story. We all know what's happened in Zimbabwe. We all know that uh, somehow humankind has survived lots of nastiness. Uh, we've survived pestilence and we've survived wars and kings and highway robberies and whatever there is that nastiness that's on our way. So in a way good news is we'll survive somehow. I don't know you or me, maybe the children, the grandchildren, if it happens, but we could all see that we are going into a deflationary period. And for all intents and purposes, after having researched this work, I would rather be in an inflationary period than in a deflationary period. The John Exter's triangle um, with the devolution, uh, we've already had that, we've covered that, but basically deflation, that is the vertical devolution of people trying to get out here, to get out of a small business. And the way it is happening is by dropping interest rates. That's the mechanism. Dropping interest rates started in the 80s. And it's still continuing, although now at a much faster pace because you can have lower rates, you can have always much faster than, you know, coming from 18% to 9% it will take a while. But from 2% to 1% to a half and so on, that goes fast. And that's important because it is sucking out capital to the wrong places. That's deflation. It started in the 80s. Deflation started in the 80s. That's when we also saw that people started this hoarding. I mean, the super tankers are still there, but they haven't been built bigger, maybe for technical reasons that you can't build any bigger. But there's another reason, namely, there's no need for it. This warning is characteristic of a deflationary period, and this is essential in understanding. You won't find it in traditional economics. What is happening, 
during the deflationary period is something very peculiar. There is this legal positivism that says law says what money is and in many, well in all countries there must be some kind of law that says alright the money of the country is the pound or the euro or the dollar or the rupee doesn't matter but that's somehow it's defined in some law think of it was it also like six seven eight hundred years ago was it like that a thousand years ago when people they were living everywhere also in in India in America people were living everywhere and they used gold somehow people managed to say well it's the king's prerogative give it to me only and this, the Greeks were good in that uh, 2000 years ago the Greeks were good in that only the king's face may be imprinted on the coin nobody else's it had something magic and maybe people were more primitive and they believed it for whatever reason but I mean natural law was still uh, very much in vogue and you see these uh, emperors of the world encroaching and coming closer and they say right this is gold this is my gold and it's also my money because it bears my face it was the beginning one of those early stages where you could say right the uh, the politicians trying to come close in on money it was a long, a long stage. I mean, it wasn't easy for them either. What is happening right now? That is, that we have a, and the professor calls it this, uh, a continental drift, or a continental rift between two continents. I believe what he says is this. You may have the law saying, all right, we have a dollar, and the dollar can take the form of a paper bill, can take the form of a treasury, which are payable in paper money. I don't believe we have in Europe uh, treasury bills which are payable in euros, do we? I don't think so. It's only in the United States where they are payable in uh, in currency, in, in hard cash, cold cash. And knowing the European Union, they want to shy away from cold hard cash by putting their foot down and say we want digital money and we all, you know, money is digitalized, which is another form of a euro. And possibly in the States also, there's the digital revolution is there as well, uh, I mean, uh, probably started it. So, uh, in your bank account you have dollars, but you can't touch them, can you? They're not tangible. Of course, you could take your card and go to the teller and say, fine, give me $500, I want to be in cash. 
for the time being, due to technical nominalism, and I say for the time being, you can still go to the teller. However, consider this, the Brazilians in, well, not so long ago, I can't remember the date, was it in the 80s, 86, when the Brazilian currency collapsed? Anybody knows? Was it 86? Was it 96? 90. Was it 1990? All right. 9-0. What happened? People had electronic money in their banks until they tried to get them out. Banks were closed. Not only that, tellers were closed and the teller machines were closed. Big trouble. Those with currency in their mattress could go on with life. Those with millions in the bank, well, they couldn't buy bread for the next day. And this is the continental drift. This is where things start to get out of hand in a monetary crisis. The devolution, remember the pyramid? Electronic money is on the top, but in a deflationary period, cold hard cash counts. You want that cash in your hand. You don't want it in the bank, because that bank may go bust. First of all, you should speak to those account holders with uh, this Icelandic bank called... Uh, what is the funny name of this Icelandic bank? Kaupting. Was it? Was it solved? I don't think so. Well, uh, last time I heard about Kauting Bank, um, certain portions were rescued, but uh, certain deposit holders uh, called for good, huh? There's the, well, there's destruction of buying power and capital, but you rather have the cash in your hand the vertical pyramid. Why am I saying that uh, that's because in a deflationary period how do you, I mean deflationary period you, you want that cash and the reason why we ended up in a deflationary period is not because of um, some some kind, well, obviously there's a natural law, but it's not a cosmic law that it says that it does have to happen, that we have to enter into an inflationary period and then into a deflationary period. It's not like a cosmic law that's, you know, swallow it and get over with. This is man-made. The inflationary periods and the deflationary periods are man-made. And before you tell me, hey, 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 stop, 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 because, I mean, uh, 1971 is only occurring here, and this is where the dollar went with gold, so how can you speak about that? Well, let's not forget that policymakers, to call them politely, have been trying to get their ways with money. And if I collect... If I recollect correctly, banks have been sheltering not only real bills, 
early on in history. We're talking here about um, the 17th century. Banks have been in existence for a long time. But they took in real bills. And the real bills always came up 90 days later with real gold. And they had in portfolio real bills. One day they could always have one ninetieth of the portfolio uh, maturing. So they had always gold in their uh, in stock, in, you know, to pay out people of the country. But at some stage, here earlier on, they started sheltering government debt. And this is where I personally think things weren't smooth anymore. They started swinging. It's a personal opinion, I may be wrong. Um, besides, that could be a subject for another thesis. The origin of the Kondratiev wave. I'm not going to do that now. But we're stuck with this, and we're stuck with the politicians. In the deflationary period, you may want to question whether a federal federal note dollar not for the Americans. But are there any Americans here? No, all uh, Europeans and a Canadian. Huh? Not Canadian? You may want to wonder if um, your um, technical nominalism is still going to hold, because that is what the law says, one dollar is one dollar, and in the bank you have a million and uh, you can't get hold of them. Damn. Probably later on. And that's when people say, fine, you have in your mattress a thousand dollars, I'll give you a check for fifteen hundred dollars. When the bank opens later, later midweek it will all solve. But I'll give you fifteen hundred dollars for the one thousand dollars that you have got in cash. Do you see it's happening? Because now one dollar is not more, not equal to one dollar. And I'm sure that happened in Brazil and in all the other countries where the people were locked out from their banks. You should be, according to the law, you should be writing a check for a thousand dollars and obtain a loan, plus a little bit of interest. But that is not the same as fifteen hundred dollars for one dollar. Eh? That's not interest. That is usually. But in any way, real money, tangible money, commands a premium. Remember the triangle? The further down, the more premium you command. Gold commands a premium, as opposed to electronic money, which goes at probably this discount. As a little um, expose, probably to those. I mean, you have people that know a lot about money. I think some people are bankers and, and others I have seen. You know, a lot of people in this room know about um, money, but I'll, I'll, I'll just for, I'll, I'll do this quickly. How many kinds of money do we have? Historically, we have charter money. That's the coins 
and the currency, the paper bills. Used to be only the coins. That's charter money. Now, in economics, they use the term M0, which is money, zero at the base. I made a note here, which is 15% of M1, which is the monetary base number one. Secondly, we have gyro money, which is money in your bank accounts and your, your, your check deposits. But it's gyro money, it exists in your bank's computer by digitals only, ones and zero, or it exists in your statement because it's printed on paper. But it's not a dollar, it's not a euro, it's a bank statement. It means that you have a claim on your bank to pay you your money back. That's the difference. It's charter money. Charter money, that's the hard cash. The hard cash. The gyro money, that's not real money. For all intents and purposes, the government says it's money. But it's not this one. Third, we have electronic money, which is stored on chips, yeah, credit cards. It's, just, it's the stuff that you use on a parking meter. Uh, uh, you, you load it up at, um, at, at your own teller, and then you can go and buy something or buy parking space, um, in my country at least, and it will cost you uh, 50 cents or whatever it costs, and you, you say, okay, press the button, and your chip card gets eaten by 50 cents. So this is just a quick run through on how money, what money we have. M0, that's your currency or your total money. M1 is M0 plus your check deposits, your claims. And I know this is not very scientific. I'm just doing this for presentation purposes uh, because if, if I define this discreetly, um, I am open to criticism, I know. But for um, all intents and purposes of quickly running this, M1 is just M0 plus checks and deposits. M2 includes M1 plus demand deposits. This is short term, this is longer term. M3, that includes M2, and we have institutional money added to that. Now this is big money. This is where your bank goes to the uh, central bank to borrow some funds against collateral. It's also electronic money, by the way, but that's institutional money. Here is where it gets fast. It has lots of zeros. We all know that M3, as an indicator of money printing, technically not money printing, but I mean money creation, M3 has been suppressed. Is everybody still with me? We've seen the amounts or the, num the, the ways we can uh, have money from charter money to gyro money to electronic money. We've seen this inverted pyramid where there's a scramble down. And I believe Nathan is the researcher who has found out that there is also a, a horizontal uh, scramble from bars to coins, I believe, which is not something we're going to talk about, but there is a devolution which is vertical and there's a devolution which is horizontal also. 
and it happens in a deflation. In an inflation, you would, where, where the, I mean, deflation means a high demand for money, and inflation means people let go of money. And I know the picture that floats around in your mind, where there is this um, picture of a German family burning notes. That applies to the marginal utility for money. But it doesn't apply to the inflation or the deflation. In fact, that was in 1922, 1920, or 1930 period in the Weimar Republic, uh, that happened there. And the picture that's stuck in most people's minds is that this family is burning paper. It, it looks like there is no demand for money, but it's the, on the contrary, there is a high demand for money in a deflationary period. Um, that, that picture, comes, well, it seems that it contradicts what I'm saying, but it isn't. In, in, um, in uh, Germany, something, well, it was an isolated case in the first instance, and um, the demand for money was, was a case apart. Because it was met. It was hyperinflation. It was hyperinflation. Exactly. But the demand for money was high. We were in the depression. 1930s was high demand for money. In the rest of the world, that high demand for money was not met, except in Germany. That's why they got into a hyperinflation. So don't confuse hyperinflation and inflationary periods. Uh, with what I've just said. There is a high demand for money in a deflationary period. And not only a high demand for money, there is a high demand for real money. The, the, the electronic kind that exists with banks which may you know, be in business by today and may be gone tomorrow, that is not the kind of money that is in high demand. With the people at least. And I'm, rough, I'm generalizing, of course, for all intents and purposes. Another piece of bad news with deflation, and as I've said, this vertical triangle, people are trying to get out of these electronic money, but also out of commodities. And there's a scramble for the scarce goods in the bottom, which is gold, but also for scarce goods in real life. In a deflation, jobs were destroyed. People are out of jobs. They are the ones who have a real demand for money. But they can't get it. They can't get it. Even one cent seems very hard to get. So it's not the goods that are scarce, but the means. <coughs> I'm sorry. It's not the goods that are scarce, but the means that are scarce. It's not that the goods are not available, but the means to buy the goods are not available. Um, re yes, relatively speaking, but uh, the destruction of, of your market means that factories also go out of business, and you may end up that there is no more toothpaste. Ask Zimbabweans if they had toothpaste or toilet paper. Very basic stuff. 
Okay, but I'm not sure. If, you know, Zimbabwe most likely these goods are imported and they don't have currency to pay for it. Why are they imported? Because they don't have the capital structure to manufacture even toothpaste. It's important because they've lost their factories. They've lost their manufacturing capacity. And that is the point of deflation. Capital destruction is the point. But capital destruction means destruction of jobs just as well. Do you think now that Zimbabwe is suffering from deflation Why wouldn't they? they? They suffer from from all the illnesses of the rest of the world. The only thing that's different is that the high demand for money was met by the government. And that popped out. Boom. Gone. Total destruction of just about the whole society. Because that is the danger you can you can bomb out a complete society. A lot of, lot of Zimbabweans have left for South Africa, creating havoc in South Africa. Uh, I think now you give us a practical and a good example of how to understand what you previously, in the beginning, said debasement versus uh, inflation deflation. <coughs> that these definitions in the normal yes. way are very often misused or conflict. Yes. Um, but what is the question? Because no, because classically, the issue Zimbabwe is running inflation. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning of the presentation, we tried to bring across that debasement is the key issue, less so than inflation or deflation. That you have yes. to distinguish between inflation, deflation, and debasement, especially. And uh, it sounds to me like now this uh, Zimbabwe, which no one would, would characterize as a deflationary scenario, no. right now it gives us a practical example how to solve this. Well, how it is linked to your yes. initial statements? Well, my initial statement was, uh, let's get a few practical definitions right. Um, even Zimbabwe suffers from a deflation because their capital is gone. The gold mines in, in Zimbabwe have closed. I believe there's palladium mines, or, or, or is it... Is, um, Sandy would know, he's an expert. Are there still mines in Zimbabwe? <laughs> the and there are gold mines that are functioning. Not functioning. And How come? And it was met. Exactly. Exactly. So in a deflationary period, and there is. In Zimbabwe, people now, so the poorest people are paying for gold, and the buying is minimum, not even grams of gold, which they're paying in the US and everywhere else, but the same that they need for bread and all this stuff. And where is this in? In Zimbabwe. Well, they somehow survive. Yeah, That's the good news. The bad news is they have to suffer through Zimbabwe. Yeah, not all of them. And through the lucky ones who find a little bit gold survives the rest of the world. But basically you want to hold on to your gold, which is your capital, you don't want to eat it by converting it to food and then eat it. Goods 
And there's no manufacturing, so there's no way of, and there's no circulation either. So there's no way of regaining that capital that you lost. You're forced to dishoard your gold. You are forced to dishoard your gold. You're forced to yeah. give it up. Um, I'm not sure how much time I have left. No. Have I got half an hour? Okay, I'm going to skip this one because this belongs... I'm going very fast. This is a part of the presentation I used to... Uh, I've given nine months ago um, with the fiat currency and the, um, the way the ceiling and the floor are defined. Very fast, the ceiling... The ceiling rate of an interest rate yeah, is determined by the marginal productivity of speculation. We've seen, and I'll quickly do this, in 19, uh, 1980, interest rates were sky high. People were hoarding goods to sell them at a profit. Now the last marginal, the last marginal holder of these goods um, got cold feet and he started selling. And you know the system rolls over and you go into a deflationary period since we, ever since we've been. And now deflation also with interest rates, you have the same the floor rate of interest and the professor is the only one who has made a theoretical um, point and he's the only one who theorizes on, on these things. You will not find this anywhere else. The flow rate is determined by the marginal liquidity preference of bondholders. He also says this is the same as the yield curve. Now, this is where the danger lies because this could be dropped to zero. But dropping interest rates to zero implies grinding to a standstill. That's the problem here. The flow rate is determined by the marginal preference or marginal liquidity preference of the bondholder. Basically, you can drive this to zero. Basically, the flow is down there. And even below because we've seen negative interest rates. And here it just happened to be in the 19, 1980s that it was 18% down there was. So what that means is that at 18% interest you have certain projects. And projects, be that factories, be that um, means of employment, but certain projects and you have this uh, way to, Weighted average cost of capital, which can be subtracted. Well, we can do away with that difficult definition here. We just call it the interest rate. And at a certain interest rate, given that interest rate, you have three, four different projects, which will pay in time and in space. They will give you a certain yield. But given at that interest rate, and now if interest rates will differ your productivity is not going. I mean, your project is still there because you've committed capital to this project. You're locked in. And if interest rates go down, this is an excellent way of destroying capital. It chases capital away. If interest rates go down, you are the sucker who have, who's financed himself at 
take 15%, take 3%, take 1.5%, but you're the sucker who got in at that percentage and your neighbor, your competitor, just has to wait for the next rate move down. So basically this is the way to sub-marginalize projects. It chases away productive capital to hide and seek and goes elsewhere. There's many different ways of destroying capital, and the professor said it uh, earlier on. Um, the best way of destroying capital is to consume it. One dollar of debt will not produce one dollar of GDP. It is now negative. It, it, that is alarming because that, that is direct destruction, and this is a way of chasing it to the east. Because all these projects have disappeared to the east, to China. Now I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a gentleman. Yesterday he made the interesting observation, now hang on, why, why shouldn't we say that uh, our capital is moving to the east because of globalism? That's the reason, I mean, that's what, it's logical. Globalism is the, re is the reason why our, I mean, goods are cheaper there, you can manufacture them cheaper there. And I thought about that. And then it's, it came, it, it struck me, I mean, China has been cheaper ever since Marco Polo. China has been cheaper. In time the British were there, but no capital left in very big quantities. There was a old plantation that went to Ceylon and that went into Shanghai and whatever. You can move some capital, but British capital or, or capital stayed where it was. As long as interest rates were, were stable, they had no reason to move. Except in the 80s. Interest rates at 18% and then coming down from such high levels, marginalizing or sub-marginalizing lots of projects, much, much capital had to find other ways. It could go partially into bonds, and certainly did. Look at the bond inflation ever since the 80s, not before. But this humongous amount of capital had to find a way. And I'm saying that Globalism isn't the cause, but it's the result. The result of sub-marginalizing capital with falling interest rates is that it has to move and it will. And governments, even communist governments like the ones in China, when, when, when some big project manager comes there and says, we want to spend two billion in your country. What is he going to say? Sorry, I'm communist, I'm not taking your money. They will take it. They will take it. They never took it 200 years ago. There was no need. Nobody came to the Chinese 200 years ago. Not 100 years ago. Not 50 years ago. Just 20 years. How about that coincidence? Is it? I'm not saying that this is the reason. I'm just saying it should be researched. Is globalism? A result, or is it the cause, as it is explained by, by uh, what's his name, Krugman? 
another Nobel Prize winner. And nobody questions him, except for Professor Fekete. It should be. Globalism isn't. It didn't drop out of the air. It was, it's the result of this steamroll of capital flowing elsewhere, trying to hide from this destruction. Some, some people were entrepreneurs, and it's in their life and blood, and they moved eastwards. And I hope I've um, answered your question, probably partially. This is just thinking about it last night. It, it's, it struck me that um, the explanation of um, rational economists of these days very questionable, very questionable. Now people are desperate uh, in these times of, of deflation. Now we've, we've, we've seen this, uh, the creation of electronic money, for instance, the variety that you cannot touch. I think what will happen in, in a state of permanent backwardation, and backwardation being the signal it's this flashlight that something is wrong. It's the flashlight that says, get into cold hard cash. Fast. Now, this is translation. Um, technically, um, that my explanation would be something to laugh about, but you know, technically, Sandeep has said this is the reason why people um, and how they trade, and of course that is, that is correct. I'm translating this for the benefit of, of, of the group. Not, the group is not homogeneous, we're not all scientists here, so um, it should be um, understandable for everyone. So backwardation is this flashlight. It's an alarm. Get into cold hard cash, because not, nothing is what it seems. You may see other signs of um, deflation. You could, you could look at eBay sales. eBay sales where people you know, sell secondary, second-hand goods. In my opinion, it will increase as people get desperate for money. And prices will come down. But it's just a signal and it's, it's not a scientific signal. But it's um, something to remember. Because of the capital destruction, sir, in Zimbabwe, in a deflationary period, not everything will be uh, abundant. There's a high demand for money, but because of capital destruction, due to coming down of interest rates, due to high levels of debt, meaning that you're eating your capital, you're consuming it, there may not be one factory left. Now, I don't think it will come down to that bad level that it is the last fast factory standing up, you know, is going to close down tomorrow. Uh, it, it, will, it will not come down to that. There's six billion people, and with one factory of bread, it, I mean, it will not work. Before it comes that far, um, people would have had some kind of revolution and then things change all the time in the course of history. 
And history isn't like 10 years ago, history is like thousands of years. It's, we are only getting 70, 80, 90, some of us 100 years old, which is only a drop in a bucket. And I see I have to move on quickly. Um, I've had this uh, slide because as interest rates drop, um, th there's massive wholesale destruction of capital. With the destruction of capital, there goes the jobs. If you don't believe that interest rates can go negative, here's an example. I've got this from a British newspaper, probably not very readable in the back. Um, this couple, and he's an estate agent, took it just as an example from the newspaper, of the 24th, like three days ago, hot of the, uh, how do they say this, hot of the needle? Hot of the needle news? Yes? Is that the expression? No. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, it's fresh. His, him and his wife, who is pregnant, have got this mortgage on this 400,000 pound dwelling, which seems to be just two windows upstairs and <laughs> bay window. All right. Don't know about the backyard, but never mind. Four hundred thousand pounds and mortgage. You know, it would horrify me. But never mind. He's uh, he signed up, and luckily for him, he's got a special contract um, which gives him one and a half percent below Bank of England. And Bank of England has come down to whatever one percent, half a percent. So basically, he's in negative territory. But the computer of the building society didn't accept negative interest rates. And the article says, okay, you're paying 0001 pence, you know, one penny a month, and after 24 months, we'll give you 23 pennies back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the article. Mm -hmm. So this is the interest of the mortgage. That's the interest. Yeah. The mortgage is different. So that um, is why I'm saying, right? The art, yes, it's, but he, uh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> But negative interest rates were not being able to. I mean, the computer didn't handle it. Yeah, I understand that. But it's not that his mortgage, including repayment, dropped from 1,500. The board was interest, what was 200 or whatever. That's right, that's right. 200 to 1 pence, yes. His, his 400,000 pound um, mortgage was still there. And if there's no jobs, he's going to be in a pitiful position that he's got to find somehow 400,000 pounds. <laughs> but that is what really uh, makes him angry on yeah, today because it's so misleading and uh, enough stupid people outside who run after that now and get the next mortgage because of that. I have one pence, I still can, even as an arm. This European social wealth uh, can easily pay one pence in the kitchen. Mm. Right? That's the problem. It's, it's the problem. Now, here's uh, a visual presentation of uh, negative interest rates, which, after they hit negative, Treasury bills, and those are the Treasury American, the, U the US Treasury bills, they command a premium. 
Why is that? Because they are payable in dollars. Europeans are not aware of any European treasury that's payable in cold hard cash. Not aware of it. Possibly exists. Could be. Could be. Same is going to happen then to the Euro Treasury Builder. Even if it goes negative, which should mean if interest rates go down, the Treasury bill goes up in value. But of course, um, it's only half the picture. As you reach maturity date, your premium goes down with it to the day of maturity, obviously. It won't be in negative interest if it commands. Why, why, why is that? Because the, the, the premium still is there after the um, maturity date. And that is because it's payable in cold hard cash, the triangle. You don't want the electronic version, you want that cash. That's the premium there. And it happened in the 30s. I've put this up as an interlude. Um, if um, somebody from the Nomura company is here, please apologize. I'm going to have a poke a little bit of fun here because this is the Keynesian system. Keynesian system, they've got half right because basically they said, all right, the black arrow is the problem and the white arrow is the solution. The problem is there's a vicious cycle about the fall in asset prices, yada, 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 yada. no demand for funds. Uh -uh. There is a demand for money. That's the first problem. There's, that's wrong there. But um, basically in a deflationary period, nothing happens, they say, because private sector is minimizing debt. True. They pay down their debt. Well, they're trying to get out of their debt because their present values, their cash values of their debt are snowballing with interest rates coming down. They should get out of that and you know, not incur debt. That is true. So this is what the classical Keynesians uh, and also Paul Krugman calls the liquidity trap. And look, they have a solution, a fiscal stimulus. So they take your money and say, fine, we make a hole in this vicious circle and we'll spend it all. Remember what the professor just said this morning? Debt, marginal utility of, uh, the marginal productivity of debt, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. They're not going to, I mean, they, can, they may spend fiscal, your money, and, and borrow some more extra to break the circle and it will not happen. It will not happen. Because they don't understand the triangle. <coughs> what John X's triangle is saying, every new money created here, the debt that goes into the system, the liquidity, well, in order to make liquidity, they have to get into debt. New money in the fiat system is debt will not flow uphill. It will be hoarded. It will be hoarded by businesses to pay down that, to pay down the other. They will not invest it into productive plant. It will not. 
No productive plant, no jobs. No jobs, no money for the people to spend. Yet they have this magical formula. And the magical formula is born in error because they think if they spend your money and blowing it into what they call the system, it's all going to be solved. No. No, it isn't. Bad news. So, sorry, Mr. Um, what's his name? Richard Kuhl, who wrote this. I'm poking a bit of fun here at Krugman also. Um, this is an article he wrote about, well, whatever, three, three, four weeks ago. And he says, right now, our economy is being dragged down by a dysfunctional financial system. Wow, that's right, of course. As economic historians can tell you, it's an old story. Yes. That's not different from dozens of similar crises over the centuries. Excuse me. Then he goes on. There's a time-honored procedure for dealing with the aftermath of widespread financial failure. It goes like this. The government secures confidence in the system by guaranteeing many, not all necessarily all, bank debts at the same time and takes temporary control of the truly insolvent banks in order to clean in their books. Hmm. Sounds good. And he says, well, like if I've got proof. Look, look what Sweden did. And look what we did in the Reagan years with the savings and loan debacle. So, he says, we can do it, we've done it, we've been there. Why shouldn't we do it again? Sorry, Mr. Krugman. This is a global crisis. It's not Sweden. And it's not a savings and loan problem, which was only a few, well, I can't remember the correct figures. It's not a few hundred million. This is about a global problem, a global meltdown. And uh, the way he's going to solve it, he's got his magical, uh, he's got his other magical formula, and um, he's, he's basically in this article um, ridiculing it and sizing it to his proportions, which I don't think is fair. Problem is much bigger than he wants to admit. Besides, in a previous article, he admits that the problem is much larger than everybody else thinks. And here he writes something to the contrary, you know, we can solve this, whatever. Anyway, gone with him. I don't know why he gets uh, this, uh, this Nobel Prize for such, such uh, nonsense, really. And I can say this here on camera because I'm not an economist and <laughs> not a banker. There is, however, one small thing. Um, we still have some time. Good. And this is on a personal level. In a deflationary period, there's a small amount of good news. This is the instance where you could try to use the government's laws against the government. And I'll expand on this in the following small way. Um, I've done this thesis on uh, the silver and the gold uh, coins, basically saying that um, there is a breakdown of technical nominalism. Technical nominalism says, you know, that was Knapp's work. One 
euro is one euro, and that's it. You could use that system against the government. Please take note of this. This is an untried system in Europe. It has been tried in the United States. It didn't work. It didn't work in the United States. I'm saying there is a possibility that it might it just might work in the in European countries. Silver is coined, especially in large quantities, by the Austrian bank, or the Austrian mint, the, uh, the Wiener Philharmonica, gold also. And as far as I'm concerned, the Belgians do the same, and the French, and the Dutch, and the Germans, they all... The Germans, I'm not even sure. The Germans don't coin. No, 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 sorry. Well, not the Germans, but the, the, the Austrians do. And um, technical nominalism, as far as the breakdown is concerned, you could use. Because basically your business, and you're the owner of your own business, this is where it comes in, you make your business purchase 100,000, say 100,000 of these uh, Euro denomination coins. So you purchase 100,000 and you get, well, let's say 20,000 worth of gold, Wiener, uh, Wiener Philharmonica, or whatever amount, 20,000 nominally. This is how you use the law against the, the government. This is money, sir. You said it is money. The euro is money. Article 10 of the ordinance, European, the second euro ordinance. The euro is the only legal payment, but it should be used. So, I'm the owner of the business, and I have a claim against my company for a salary. Please pay my salary, which is, uh, say, 3,000 euros. And your company purchases 3,000 euros, silver, nominally, for 25,000. They pay you out 3,000, nominally, in silver. But somehow you can you can feel this coming. You know what's going on here. Something isn't right. Where's the difference? Well, this is the good news. In the breakdown of technical nominalism, where natural law takes over, this is where natural law takes over, and you use it against the system. If the ECB says one euro is one euro, I'm paying myself three thousand euros, and I'm paying taxes of three thousand euros. Look, I've got three thousand coins. Or, or so many coins that says, you know, euros. And you said this is money, so this is 3,000 euros. That's the law, your law, you said. Now in certain countries this will work. You purchase for 25,000, you take it into your bank, and it's booked at nominal value, because that is what it should be. It should be banked at nominal value, that's what money is. Otherwise you break the law. Where does the difference go? The difference between your purchase price and your nominal price, well, it goes into the losses. It goes, it's, it's written down, it's loss. But you have a claim against your company for your salary of 3,000 euros and you're paying yourself. And you pay your taxes on that. Please do, right? Because otherwise you're in deeper trouble. Obviously, the taxman is not going to agree with your way of doing this. But this is my research, being a tax counsel. The tax man in certain countries has no case 
One of them is in Belgium. The proviso is this, you should use Belgian coins, and they are. And in Austria, you should, you should research this. In Austria, you should use the Wiener Philharmonica, because it's minted in the country. And in the country where it's minted, the coin is legal tender. Only there. I cannot use in Belgium the Wiener Philharmonica because it's minted in Austria. In Belgium, the Wiener Philharmonica is not accepted as legal tender. So they say, I'll accept Wiener Philharmonica for payment any day. Yeah, but, but I have to value them differently. The first purchase must accept the loss from the purchase from the price yes. to the Wiener Philharmonica. Yes. Uh, Europe. Yes, you're right. And this is a catch. If you take your argument one step further, let's say I'm a worker and I get paid in these silver coins. Yes. What do I do with them? I sell them to somebody who pays me, instead of one euro, pays me ten euros because that's what they want. I have a capital gain. That's what he taxes me. Well, in the United States, this has been come, this has already come to trial, and um, the system there. The, the, the judges did not accept that. Um, the judges didn't accept technical nominalism in, in the United States. So there were a few court cases. And your capital gain, well, exactly in Europe, you could say you have a capital gain. And nobody says that you should be paid entirely in silver or in gold, but yeah, just the portion that you want to. You pay the taxes on the capital gain. In certain countries, there's capital gains tax. Not in all countries, there's capital gains tax. Not in all countries. I don't think that's what he meant. 
it's not his end. Because there's one very big hidden danger which struck me, and I wanted to keep this as closing argument. Last time, in the 1930s, there was this kind of depression because of the suppression of the gold standard by Roosevelt. We should also have a broader look what happened to society. Let's have a look. We had this philosophical idea that was around the people and the best, best person to, um, to illustrate this is um, we had Al Capone in the United States. And he was an excellent example of, of um, this, this philosophical stream of nihilism, if you know what it is. Nihilism is, I couldn't care less. I'm not bothered. with you? Then it should be done. I mean, nihilism is, is very just, it's not even a philosophical system or a philosophical thing. It was at the bottom of the pit. People were depressed. Don't forget that. They were out of jobs. Nihilism was everywhere. Another very striking example of nihilism was Hitler. He was a epiphany. And look what he did. And this is where I close. Because I think what the professor is trying to warn us It's not only the money, it's not only the gold. It's everything else that goes with it. Everything else that goes with it. Social upheaval. Nihilism as, as an example. I'm not saying that people hit us again. It may take a different name and a different form. But it might just hit us again. If it's not stopped. This picture, it's not from the 30s, but it illustrates the mind of the people when they get unrestless. Make the people, make the rich pay for the crisis. There's still voices there coming up. So, if you've been advertising to the, to the rest of the world that you've been buying gold, you may think twice about it. Don't tell them that you've sold it, because you will be remembered by the people in, an, in a social unrest that you've got gold, and you don't want to do that. Because gold, you are the owner of gold in the bottom of this triangle. The vertical devolution will come down to you. You will be hounded, possibly. If people know that you've got gold, you may not survive. That's how bad it may get. And with that, Daryl, I'm closing. Thank you. How are you doing this? I would just like to add a, there are a few triumphs in this uh, battle against government uh, debasement of our currencies. And I'd like to draw attention just to one before we close, because it sort of alludes to what Peter said about the uh, coinage and government rules and things like that. There was a coin dealer, um, a guy interested in coins in, in, in Nevada, 
don't know if he was a coin dealer, but he was in gold and silver like the rest of us were. And he'd been thinking about this, you know, paper money and gold and silver. And he decided that he was going to pay his employees in, in dollars. I mean, gold dollars, you know, like legal tender, gold eagles, etc. you know, minted by the U.S. Mint as legal tender. So let's say the, uh, uh, the spot price of gold was $800, okay? And what he did at one point, he, and he, he got the agreement of his employees to do this, let's say they were getting paid $800 a week. So in lieu of a check for $800, this man gave a one ounce gold coin, minute US dollar, to the employees for their work, okay? And, they, and it was all agreed upon that, that they would take this. So at the end of the year, for let's say they worked 52 years, 52 weeks a year, they had 52 of these one ounce gold coins for their salary. And they reported this to the feds that their income was $52. <laughs> the feds, when they got this income tax return, that he said he was paying his people $52 you know, a year, there was no withholding. There was no social security, there was nothing. And what are they going to tax them on? And so the feds, the IRS brought charges against him. And they, it was a huge case, came with guns, just the way they do it. They, they like to play that way, you know, authority. And they, they arrested his wife, they arrested a bunch of people, and they went to trial. And what happened is, is that they lost. The feds lost. All news of this was wiped out. They didn't want anybody else to know. I mean, not that anybody would do it, but the fact that a court of law, a jury in the United States, said what he did was legal. There was no, there was, I mean, it was legal tender, he paid him in legal tender, and there was no need to withhold any, you know, because it was so low that, there, that he could get away with it, so he had broken no laws. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're dealing with something, we're, we're dealing, you, you can't tax protest, you, you can do it. But you're dealing with a system of power that's so entrenched and so powerful that if you really had a, a, a mounted an effective system, it doesn't matter how legal it is, you're going to lose. You're up against the, the boys, and they've got a franchise at stake. The franchise is money and power. And the good news is, I mean, Peter said the bad side is, the good news is, is that we're watching it. It's falling apart in front of us. It's not tax protesters is doing it. It's not riots in the street. They've done it to themselves. And we're here, all of us. That's why we're here in, in Hungary this time, because these issues concern us. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but my God, I can promise you it's going to be exciting. So um, that ends the afternoon session.